Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Episode 163 of The Bowery Boys. The South Street Seaport. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We are thrilled to finally be tackling this topic, which we've had a lot of requests for, the South Street Seaport. We've heard from listeners who visit New York, we've heard from people who live in the seaport area, and we most recently heard from a group of listeners uh, who are 11th grade students at Baruch College Campus High School here in Manhattan. The students of Miss Catherine Terso. So they helped us select this subject from one of three ideas that they came up with. So thank you guys. This is going to be a very old story and a very new story. We're going to literally be uncovering the foundation of what made New York one of the greatest cities in the world in the early 19th century. The shipping trade that was located along the waterfront of the East River. Today's South Street Seaport is really a remnant of what used to stretch much further north and south of what we call today's South Street Seaport. Although it's a construct that was basically created in the 1950s, 1960s, it does contain within it are some of the oldest buildings that are still standing in New York today. We'll introduce you to some salty sailors, a few river pirates, and, Tom, some of the scariest rats that you've ever heard of. And I've met some scary rats (laughs) past 20 years. So grab a line as we dock it in the South Street Seaport. So, Greg, before we jump into the history of the seaport, maybe you could set us up geographically, situate us in in Lower Manhattan. We know we're downtown. Yeah, this is tricky, of course, because a lot of what we're going to talk about, at least at the beginning, will apply to the entire waterfront area of Lower Manhattan. So basically along the East River and the lower part of the Hudson River, because we will be talking about shipping and trade here. But the South Street Seaport area is an actual historic district. 
district that's located just to the south of the Manhattan approach of the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, so Dover Street. I'm very pleased that you pulled that name because there's very little on Dover Street, but that is in fact part of the district. Well, truth be told, we did draw out a little map here and just so that we got our water in our fronts and our south streets correct. But yeah, Dover Street takes us all the way north of this district. I would say that the district in my mind, which I've been there hundreds of times, is broken up into three different areas. The oldest, most lived-in area here of the seaport is bounded by Pearl Street on the west, the Brooklyn Bridge on the north, then Peck Slip on the south side. This is a very heavy concentration of old buildings, probably some of the oldest in all of lower Manhattan. There are a few restaurants here, but a lot of them, a lot of these buildings are privately owned. The second more vibrant area, I would say, is from Peck Slip, further south to the southern border of the historic district, including Skirmerhorn Row and Fulton Street, which is a large plaza. During the weekends, there might be choirs or all sorts of performers normally. Fulton Street's kind of the, the main drag. I would say it's definitely the main drag. It's one of two plazas, the other one being Peck Slip, but that's more of a parking lot. Fulton's where all the action is. Then there's the third part, which is, of course, the shoreline itself with the piers 15 through 17 being bifurcated by the elevated FDR Drive. Pier 17 used to be this rather unusual mall that jut into the East River, which is no longer open, but the building as of recording is still there. More striking, of course, are those beautiful old ships, those tugboats, including the biggest one, which is called the Peking, and the two oldest, which are from 1885, the Waverly and the Pioneer. So that selection of boats is to the south of Pier 17. And just to help out anybody who hasn't visited South Street Seaport before or isn't looking at a map here to know your peck slip from your Fulton Street, (laughs) these are really just to a couple of blocks apart. We're, we're not really talking about that many streets here. It's, pro- it's probably five minutes from one corner to the other. Now, a few notes about terminology, because I think we're going to be f- banding about some phrases here as if we are, you know, trained and expert sailors upon the sea. Mm-hmm. First of all, I wanted to say that the name of the area, South Street Seaport, is a fairly modern construction that dates back to the 1960s. It's not like you're going to look back at a 19th century newspaper and they're going to say South Street Seaport. And that came from this idea that happened in the mid-20th century of a lot of cities taking back their waterfronts. And in fact, South Street Seaport does resemble in a lot of ways Baltimore, Boston, Philadelphia, that type of thing. So it all came from this particular movement. We're also going to be throwing around some sort of common terms here that I wanted to give a little definitions of. So we're going to talk about piers and docks and wharfs and slips. Yes. A pier seems obvious, but let's just... But they can be deceiving. Yes. A pier is an anchored platform that goes out over the water. can be a strolling pier. And, of course, the ones that we'll be talking about in in most cases are, are the ones that you tie a boat to. Right. A dock is the area between two piers. I did not know that. um, Although it can also mean pier, but they're sort of used interchangeably. But in in essence, it's the place between two piers. It would be the space where you dock your boat. 
a wharf is the structure on land where once you've docked your boat and you've gotten off on the pier, you take the cargo and you put it into the wharves, uh-huh. which would be lining the street there. And then finally, because this is a little bit more obscure, and was used mostly in the Dutch period, the slip, which is kind of like a docking place, except that, at least back in the Dutch New Amsterdam days, they didn't build piers. What they actually did is they carved little mini harbors out of the land itself. So it's, in essence, the opposite of they a were, pier. They were letting the boats come to their structures, to their buildings. They're like a mini canal, almost. Like a little Amsterdam. Yeah. One of the more fascinating things that I hope you take from this podcast is that most of the area that we are talking about here was not land around the Dutch period. It was all underwater. It was created by landfill. So during the Dutch period, Pearl Street was as far east as the island went. So boats could pull up to Pearl Street. Just imagine that today. The the subsequent streets, uh, water, front, and south would come much later. Now, since I'm on the Dutch here in New Amsterdam, that city is so small that the seaport area, as it is today, is way too far out of town. This isn't even behind the walls of New Amsterdam. But there was one intrepid Dutchman in 1640 named Cornelius Dirksen, who did build a small inn right here on the shore of Pearl Street. So basically the first businessman of the seaport area, we like to call him. This little inn catered to businessmen and fur traders who would come through. And in particular, he provided a very unique service. For this was the very first water taxi to Brooklyn. It was an individual taxi service. What you did is you went up to the inn. You went up. There's a tree right next to the inn with a horn. You grab the horn. A horn, like a trumpet? Like a little trumpet, yes. Uh-huh. I don't believe we know for sure. But you blow the horn, and whatever Cornelius was doing at the time, like laundry or whatever sure. manner of things he's doing, he, he would drop that, and he would run to the front door, and then for a fee, a very handsome fee, he would take you personally over to Broekelen which was the Dutch colony, which, of course, became Brooklyn. Cornelius Dirksen. Dirksen, Dirksen's water taxi. Dirksen's water taxi. It was so profitable that two years later, he just decided to have a water taxi and, you know, dispense with sort of the... the, With his laundry. Yes, with the laundry and all of that. So he is the very first ferry that went between Manhattan and Long Island. One notable aspect about the Dutch as trading partners, because, of course, New Amsterdam was a settlement that was built for a company, the Dutch West India Company. The city was all about trade. It was all about commerce. So New Amsterdam didn't have a lot of the same trading hangups that the other North American settlements had. Mm -hmm. New Amsterdam was open to trading with anybody if it meant profits. So they were open. Their waterways were navigable. They were about the bottom line. They were about the bottom line and about prospering. And that made the settlement of New Amsterdam and then later New York very multicultural. They were very tolerant as well of other ethnicities, religions, languages. So there was a much more diverse commerce-based population here that had everything to do with shipping and importing and exporting. Now, we're going to be squeezing by the British here to get to... Not um, always an easy task. No, but I, but I do 
do want to underscore the fact that they would develop really all up and down the East River, but in particular, even by the area's Corlears Hook, which is slightly above the area that we are talking about today on the East River shoreline, they would hatch the first shipbuilding yards would be around there. And then, of course, the New Yorkers of the 19th century would sort of take that and develop it even further. One thing the British did give to New York was a taste for tea. The Americans, once they were in charge, still wanted their tea and furthermore wanted to be able to trade with India. They had lost touch. Uh, The British had connections and colonies all over the world. So now that the Americans were in charge, how were they going to get over to China to get these goods? In 1784, the first American-built wooden ship would debut in New York City, and that was the Empress of China, a very important ship in New York's history. I have a lovely illustration of it here oh, taped to yes, the wall. Yes, you that's do. The, well, I'll put that on the blog. It's a, it's a, she's a handsome. It's a lovely, it's ship. like a ship in a bottle. This ship, the Empress of China, would set sail in 1784. It was built in Baltimore, financed in Philadelphia, but maintained and and set sail from New York's harbor. And it would return the next year in 1785, packed with goods from China. Imagine imagine the goods beyond tea, of course, and spices. There was porcelain. There were other goods. And they also repeated it in 1787 with another boat, the Experiment. Meaning that, like, we're experimenting with two boats? <laughs> we don't know <laughs> well, if they're they going to make start, it? They had to start somewhere. Uh-huh. And it, it was kind of risky. And these things were very expensive to build as well. But you can imagine the bounty that they could bring back, and not just that, but that they could ship over as well. And it, and it didn't work so well in other colonies. In fact, in 1787, an attempt to sail to China from Boston had failed. So it was decided that all of the commerce back and forth to China would go through New York. New York would be the official port from the United States to China, which caused, obviously, a big transformation to the area um, surrounding it, because then you'd have... Like you were saying before, you'd have the wharves, you'd have the, uh, you'd need to have the infrastructure in place to support all of those sailing vessels. But eventually, there were more ships that were en route to China here from New York, right? And and not just China, there was also the European trade. So a big development happened in the early 19th century with the advent of the ocean liner. Now, this was a company that was comprised of several different sailing vessels that would make these long-haul voyages from from New York to Liverpool or to China, but on a set schedule. This was a huge innovation mm-hmm. because before what would happen is you'd have a, a big sailing vessel and it would be at the dock <laughs> and it would be waiting there until it was completely loaded with its supplies and the weather conditions were good, and then it would set sail. So it could take months to leave, and then, of course, you would never know when it was coming back. Right. You just knew that when conditions were right on the other side, and it had a full cargo, and the weather conditions were good, it would come back as well. So in 1818, there was the first ocean liner uh, based here in New York called the Black Ball Liner. It set sail on a schedule, and it was between New York and Liverpool. 
it was made up of four different ships because it took so long to get over there. Remember, these are obviously sailboats, <laughs> right. mm-hmm. and weather is unpredictable. So the four ships were the Amity, the Courier, the James Monroe, and the Pacific. Uh, such regal names <laughs> uh, sailing between these two destinations. Clearly, it was very advantageous for New York over these other ports to have these on-schedule boats because manufacturers for up and down the coast would, would know that, like, well, I can come to New York. They're going to leave it this time. If I want to have these goods bound for England, I better get there within a few days. Suddenly, there was predictability when you shipped or received through New York. Imagine the goods that were being brought back from Europe or from China. Imagine all the fabrics, the spices, the food products. And much of the stuff being stored in warehouses and wharves in what we call today's financial district here on the east side. And so you had all of those buildings there, but it wasn't just the warehouses. You also had to have uh, buildings that housed the commercial interests, you know, where the bosses uh, decided how much they were going to charge people uh, to ship their merchandise abroad, where the financiers would meet to invest in the shipbuilding enterprises. Including, to come back to South Street Seaport in specific here, a very handsome row of counting houses that were built between 1811 and 1812 here along Fulton Street and are still there today. And they're the core, the backbone of South Street Seaport. And they were built by one of New York's most prominent merchants. I believe you're talking about Peter Augustus Skirmer. Yes. You mentioned that, that he built these counting houses but probably, you know, I had to look up what a counting house was. Not, it's not an accounting house. It seems kind of related, though, right? It's where the finance and the, um, the business side of the endeavor took place. The transition between the boats and the warehouses, in essence. But there were also auction houses. Uh, there were inspectors, distributors, the, you know, the sale of the merchandise happening. In 1840, there were more than 400 commercial buildings down here conducting business. And the people who built these businesses would become the backbone of what we called the merchant class. Can we back up here for a second? Because yes. no, I'd, I'd actually kind of left us with most of this land was underwater. But where, of course, for instance, the Skirmerhorn Row is, that is from landfill. So I assume right. that around this same period is when these intrepid businessmen decided to just fill everything up and create these new areas for them to, to build these wharves and warehouses. So yes, during the Dutch period, Pearl Street was the edge of the island. But by 1815, the residents and businessmen and owners had enlarged uh, the island through landfill, building out Water Street, then Front Street, and finally South Street. So those, those three additional streets were added by 1815. Newly created, so not even so about 200 years old. Oh, we should have a little party, a celebration <laughs> next year. Another consideration here is that the the warehouses or the wharves were storing all of these materials, sometimes very precious, uh, sometimes also not so glamorous, like coal being brought back from England or something. Flammable. So you have all these textiles and you have combustible materials all in these buildings. Things caught on fire almost every day back in old back in old New York, and especially on that December day in 1835 with the Great Fire of New York, which took out many, many blocks of this area that we're discussing here, was a huge devastation for the shipping industry that year. More than $17 million worth of goods went up that night in flames. 
But even so, even with this fire, New York was a boomtown because 10 years previous, in 1825, the Erie Canal had opened, which opened up a whole new trade route into the Midwest for New York as well and for the rest of the world, which only solidified its strategic position in terms of commerce in the U.S., Now, I have to say, Tom, the way that you've described all of this over here, it's already beginning to sound a little bit like a a morass, a little cluttered, hectic area of business, as New York has always been, even back in these days. You've spoken mostly of these international trade. Yes, fine linens and tea. It was around this era that was home to a very crucial market for New York. That would be the Fulton Fish Market, um, which was also situated right here in the middle of all actually here at Fulton Street and today's South Street. A rudimentary version of this opened in 1802, but in 1822, it would open into its own proper structure. So it's a place where fishermen would come and sell their their fish produce, their um, their, (laughs) Their fishes, um, their nets of fishes. But it wasn't just for just buying and selling it on wholesale, which, of course, they did here. But it was also a place that if you lived in New York City, this is where you got your fish. This is an era of outdoor markets. You bought all your food from outdoor markets. Uh, There was no refrigeration. So if you wanted, like, fresh items, you bought them as soon as you could when they came off the boat. Right. You didn't get fish for tomorrow night's dinner. (laughs) So in addition to all these shipping boats, you had these fishing boats pulling up (laughs) and these fishermen pulling off and and selling their their catches. But were they only selling fish at the the fish market? So uh, initially, this market was for all things. It was for all different kinds. It was for for meat. It was for vegetables. It was for potatoes. Whatever you came to town to sell, here was this gigantic market. However, and the fish were on the second floor of this. But as you can imagine... (laughs) As you could imagine, everyone complained of the smell and the sort of pollution of dead fish. Why did they put the fish (laughs) on the second floor? Well, maybe it was someone's clever plan for eventually they got their own building, the Fulton (laughs) Fish Market here, always dominating the local economy here of the seaport area, also dominating the The smell smell, of the local economy. Yes. Around the area, of course, where other kinds of merchants would pop up, like... Air fresheners. <laughs> air fresheners. Potpourri well, shops. I was say, like, clothing stores, coppersmiths. You know, keep in mind that Brooklyn Bridge wasn't built yet. So the the, the shoreline of just all of these three or four-story structures and mm-hmm. buildings of all different kinds kept rolling along the side of the East River here. So, for instance, just a couple blocks north of where the Brooklyn Bridge is today, a company by the name of the Brooks Brothers got its start. So had there not been Brooklyn Bridge, it would be it would be part of this area as well. Now there is a lot going on. Smell of fish, hundreds of horses and streetcars. People going back and forth wildly. People trying to cross the street. The sounds twenty four hours a day of boats coming in, boats coming out. Sailors. And so then you're thinking, oh, well, sailors, where are they going to go after dark? So a lot of them will stay in local boarding houses that, of course, would be on these very streets. And what else do sailors like to do? Well, they get, up to, <laughs> they get up to all sorts of manner of things, I would say, leading to what the New York Times in 1857 called the New York nuisances. Quote, the wharves and piers on the East River side of the city from the Battery to the Fulton Fish Markets may all be set down as overcrowded, insecure, or 
filthy. One would naturally suppose that, if it was desirable, the police and ship watchmen together might prevent persons from using the bulkheads, or seawalls, as privies. (laughs) But they do not, as the bulkheads more sufficiently show. (laughs) So now, on top of it, you have the smell of human waste, on top of everything else. So what eventually happened by the 1850s and 1860s was a mass deterioration of this area. But by deterioration, you mean a physical deterioration, not necessarily commercial deterioration. <laughs> well, a, well, a little bit, and a, mor- a moral deterioration along uh-huh. some of the side streets. But then a lot of these buildings are in already horrible shape by this time. This, of course, was designated the notorious Fourth Ward. Quote, the only rival of the Sixth Ward, a.k.a. Five Points, in its triple distinction of filth, poverty, and vice. It was a cesspool of illicit behavior, backroom activities, crime, scandal. Herbert Asbury claims that at least 40 brothels and dance halls were in a half-mile limit of Water Street. So so little Water Street here in the South Street Seaport. Imagine dozens of brothels just around that little area. I'm going to give you a couple notorious addresses of Water Street, places that you can visit today. The buildings themselves are still there. That's how old the seaport heritage here. At 273 Water Street, back in the day when it was built in the 18th century, it was owned by a Captain Joseph Rose, a famed importer of mahogany. Mm -hmm. But by the 1850s, it had morally deteriorated into the hands of one Kit Burns. It was known as Kit Burns Place. You buy lots of cheap liquor here, of course, but inside it was known for its little amphitheater that was set up on the floor for paying customers to sit and watch wharf rats battle it out to the death, and you could place your money. And then so there, was, there was rat fighting? It was rat fighting. It was dogs. It would be dogs on rats. I imagine there were a few humans that got thrown into the mix, unfortunately. Kit's own son, a chip off the old block, was nicknamed Jack the Rat, and he would sit out front of the building here, and for a quarter, he would bite the head off of a rat for you. That's a good family entertainment. (laughs) Was this legal? Not precisely, but of course, back in the day, you could grease a few palms, and the police would look the other way. That building is still standing, and I do hope that there's like a lot of renovation that's gone on in this building. I hope that like sunken amphitheater is like a you know a sunken fireplace or something now, something a little bit more tasteful. That would not even be the most notorious place on Water Street. That would be 279 Water Street. Today, it's a place called the Bridge Cafe. Oh, sure, um, yeah. Which lays claim to being the oldest operating tavern in Manhattan. Some historians contest that, but I am not going to dip my toe into those waters. I want to focus on the legend of one particular place that opened here back in the day in the 1850s that went by the name of The Hole in the Wall. The Hole in the Wall's propriety was was one-armed Charlie Monell, of course named for his... I wonder if he knew Kit. <laughs> oh, yeah, they were... Uh, they were just they down all, the block, yes, absolutely. Yeah. For security, because it was such a rowdy place, it was where all the river... And he only had one arm. And he only had one arm. It was a place where a lot of the river pirate gangs would gather and just drink themselves into a tizzy before they went out and caused all sorts of mayhem. So, for security, he actually employed two women, two very, very strong-armed women... One named Kate... Strong, strong-armed. Strong-armed with two strong arms. Kate Flannery and the very scrappy Gallus Mag. 
Gallus. Gallus Mag. Gallus Mag. Um, she kept a pistol on her waist and a club on her side. And then, just in case that you weren't frightened of her enough, she filed down all of her teeth so that she herself looked like a little rodent. That's um, gruesome. <laughs> and she would often, she was known for ripping the ears off of men and then saving them in formaldehyde behind the bar. So the these river gangs, now I have an older podcast called Corlear's Hook and the River Pirate Gangs, which gives a little background on this. But one of the river pirate gangs I talked about were the Daybreak Boys. And it was here at the Hole in the Wall where the two leaders of the Daybreak Boys got into a huge, violent fight between Patsy the Barber and Slobbery Jim. And it ended up in the horrible death of Patsy, who was slit with a razor as Slobbery stood over him, stamping the life out of him. This is, of course, one of the most... If you have read Gangs of New York, this is one of the most vivid stories in the whole thing. And this happened right here at today's Bridge Cafe. In the exact same building at Dover and Water Street. I'm only using these two as an example just to describe what the whole area was possibly like. Now, what do you know about this crimping that I read about? This not very nice practice of drugging sailors or getting them very drunk. Now, this is this would go on well into the 20th century here, right? This idea right. of, it's kind of like impressment um, in the early days of impressment, but a little bit more sorted because you would literally drug men off of the street. You would get them incredibly drunk, drug them, and then kidnap them, throw them onto a boat where they couldn't escape, and then they would have to work for you. So these guys would just be going to a bar. Mm-hmm. Down, they, they might have been sailors or they might not have been sailors, but they were down in the seaport area going into a bar, having some drinks, maybe getting a little loopy. And then the next thing they know, they wake up on a boat and have to work for months. Now, the funny thing about this is as much as it did actually happen to a great many people, I remember researching this a, a long time ago, finding these incredibly scary incidents of men being plucked off the street on South Street, and then all of a sudden they were on, on a six-month voyage. It that, was, where uh, they had to work. It wasn't they had just to work. a pleasure yeah. cruise. Right, or they would be killed. But it, as much as it actually did happen, it was also a more frightening urban legend. So friends would often scare their friends, you know, like, don't go out by yourself or this else this could happen. Yeah. So. I did want to say there have been a few, there were a few moments where they tried to clean up the area, just as they did in Five Points and many of the other more debauched areas of New York City. In 1868, in what was called the Water Street Revival, with an attempt to clean up all of these saloons and brothels along Water Street and turn them into places of worship. Oh, so, how'd that work out? <laughs> now, remember Kit Burns? Yes. Remember him in the amphitheater? Well, with the rats. Well, he actually rented out his rat pit for weekly sermons. Oh. Um, you know, he wanted to make a little money on the side. It's like, well, if you're going to have this Water Street revival, I would like cut. This attracted many clean-cut non-criminal types into his establishment here. All of whom were then drugged and woke up <laughs> six months later and had to work. Surprisingly, they were not as far as I know. Kit, of course, got paid handsomely. He bragged once that he got paid $150 an hour for this, for his foul-smelling amphitheater. I can't imagine this. Anyway, one night, Kit got drunk, I'm assuming, got fed up and said, them fellas have been making a pulpit out of my rat pit, and I'm going to purify it right after them. So he began pelting the women and the clergy with 
rats. I think hopefully, while dead or alive, I'm not sure what's worse. Pelting so everyone fled uh, Kit Burn, and so the Water Street revival, at least at this place, he started was effective- throwing rats <laughs> yes. at women in the crowd. Yes. By 1870, that was the last time they rented from Kit Burns. <laughs> well, that was 1868. By 1870, the place was closed for good, and so to the current residents, I'll use a lot of Lysol. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham... Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. But Greg, you had said that the neighborhood was in decline, or at least that the buildings were deteriorating. But this is the 1870s and 1880s, and it's otherwise considered to be really a booming time for New York City. So so something's going on here, right? The city's going through a lot of growth, huge influx of immigration, yet the seaport is declining. 
at least along the East River, correct? For other areas of shipping in New York are still doing fairly well, of course. Well, there were big changes happening in shipping. The docks <laughs> and the piers that you mentioned before that are in this area were really built for sailboats, giant sailboats and clippers. They were not built for the steamboat, which dominated the the shipping industry by the end of the 1890s. The seaport just didn't really have room for the big, large steamboats. But I would say, more importantly, in the 1870s, there was a change that had really nothing to do with shipping, uh, except that it stole from shipping, and that was the explosive growth of the railroads. As we know, that's why the west side of Manhattan began thriving, because there was a railroad along that side that could transport goods between boats and people on land. So in terms of shipping, the area is becoming a little bit less relevant. So that meant that some of the buildings didn't need to be used for their original purposes. So there was a lot of repurposing of these old counting houses and auction houses and wharves and things. New things opened up, like hotels or restaurants bars, dormitories for the sailors. And as much as we might say that it was an area in decline, you know, still, I think that's quite relative, because there was still a lot of business, a lot of ships pulling up into port still happening. So just it wasn't as explosive as it had been during the 1820s and 1830s. It wasn't quite as vital as it had been uh, 50 years before. And another change was with immigration, you know, because you had people coming in off the boats from far off lands coming to the U.S. Oh, they, they literally came off the boat right here, right? Because it was before the, there was an immigrant clearing station. So before Castle Garden and then the Ellis Island official immigration center would open in the 1890s, people would be coming straight through today's seaport areas. So they weren't arriving. And also passengers just embarking on regular voyages across the seas stopped really using this area once the Chelsea Piers opened in 1907. Now, the Chelsea Piers had very long piers designed specifically for the passenger ocean liners. Think about those long piers, Mm -hmm. some of which are still around. So there was no room for that in the South Street Seaport area. absolutely no way. Those all seem like good reasons why it's uh, it's losing a little bit of its luster. Those those aren't the only reasons. Well, there's another really big big reason Mm -hmm. why this area saw a lot less traffic and a lot less use, and that was a certain bridge that opened very nearby in 1883. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Talking, of course, about the Brooklyn Bridge, and there were other bridges that would come along, of course, in, in the following decades. There'd be the Williamsburg Bridge in 1903 and the Manhattan Bridge in 1908. And even though those are farther uptown, they were still changing the ways. Once they opened, they changed the ways that people moved around, that commerce mm-hmm. moved around, made people less reliant again on boats and on specifically on this area. The Brooklyn Bridge also conveniently ripped up dozens of horrible and shady buildings. Uh, disgusting tenements, buildings, rat, that mar- houses. <laughs> rat houses of all various sizes. And speaking of clearing out the saloons and the bars and the undesirables, the Volstead Act, or the prohibition mm-hmm. that set um, that was set into law in 1919, banning the sale and consumption of alcohol, 
basically shut down the bars around here or force them to go dry as well. Well, in, well, <laughs> in theory, as we laugh, because of course they didn't and things only went more underground. Although I'd say it was even loosely underground, it sounds like, in this neighborhood because it seemed like there was already vice had its grip, if you will, on the neighborhood. Well, these places were already associated with, I would say, a, a loose version of organized crime. And as we enter the 20th century here, it, of course, would be more associated with a more organized, organized crime. You're talking about the mafia? The area was considered to be kind of under the umbrella of mobsters, starting with these street gangs, but then really developing in a very sophisticated way to take over almost the entire New York waterfront. This is one of the things that Fiorella LaGuardia wanted to change when he came into office in the 1930s. There would be, I would say there would be three huge... Sea changes, if you will, that would occur in between the 1930s and 1950s that, will, that shapes the modern seaport that we have. The first one here is LaGuardia's efforts to clean up crime. He also pushed to improve the Fulton Fish Market, not just the health and sanitation, but to take out this whole criminal underworld that was sort of propping it up. Well, because they were, the mob was basically running up the price of things got very expensive for no particular reason outside of like they were all just getting a little extra cut. And with all of the fresh merchandise being brought directly off the boats and then sold cash to people right on the spot, you can imagine there is a lot of space for the mob to move in. Mm-hmm. So the Guardian and his commissioners cracked down on that in the 1930s. There is literally no perfect representation of what's kind of going on in the seaport. Then what happened in 1936 when a 125-foot portion of the Fulton Fish Market literally collapsed and fell into the river? Like the whole building just either threw itself in or just collapsed of its own volition. One man was injured in that, but it really sort of underscored well a lot of problems. It was a big mess. Well, they obviously needed to scale back the fish market. (laughs) Well, actually, they ended up upgrading the fish market for in 1939 was the brand new Fulton Fish Market, the building that still sits there today um, that is right next to Pier 17 um, facing into Front Street. The second change to the neighborhood was the almost, by this point, total abandonment of shipping. Now, we've been talking about the deterioration, but it leaves entirely during this era. Now, of course, not only were, was it was it bigger piers and other places that they had to compete with or the railroad, they now had to compete with, with trucks, the new American interstate system, where you could transport goods that way, and international goods could be transported by these new container vessels. Of course, much too large for the East River, obviously. So the final occupants of the South Street piers here, 15 through 17, was was the Ward Line. It folded in 1954, and with that, no more shipping came to the South Street seaport. Even that fish market by this time, most of the fish that they got was from trucks. So it's a little weird that they're here on the side of the water. So the trucks were going through Manhattan to the to the most remote place, the southern tip of Manhattan, to bring in fresh fish that would be sold and then driven back up. Yes, to import and export them from this place. But the third change here involved, of course, a network of highways that would soon be built in New York. And our old buddy... Robert Moses, who created a ribbon of highways through the New York metropolitan area that would would connect all the city. And he proposed a shoreline road that would eventually become the West Side Highway and the FDR Drive. 
Now, the FDR, if you've driven along it, I'm sure, a yeah, few yes. times, on some parts of it, it's elevated. It's other parts, it's actually street level. The original plan, believe it or not, is was to have the FDR be street level down here, cutting across the Fulton Fish Market. Well, that just wouldn't have worked, of course, if you're still having you know dozens and dozens of trucks going into the fish market every day. That would be very messy, although I will point out that the West Side Highway, you know, from much of the stretch in Lower Manhattan, is at street level, and today you can get across it. So I guess it would have been a little bit more like that, but actually probably quite a bit messier. Yeah, so that's why they built the what they call the South Street Viaduct, which is the elevated part of the FDR here, and they built it in the 1950s. But do you know, a couple decades later, they had another kind of intriguing plan. In 1971, they wanted to rip off that viaduct and build several lanes of traffic below the South Street Seaport. They had planned on eight 12-foot-wide lanes that would zoom underneath the entirety of the South Street Seaport on its way to the tip of the island, of course, to get to the west side. Of course, then you'd have a bunch of open access to the shorefront. How wonderful that would be, right? But this is 1971, and these buildings aren't yet landmarked. In order to have done that, they probably would have had to rip out most of the South Street Seaport. So it's good in a way that That this kind of fell through. Now, speaking of preservation, the first semblance of such came in 1967 with a community group that was formed by Peter and Norma Stanford that eventually became the Friends of the South Street Seaport. First time that the name South Street Seaport was officially applied to anything. They obviously were inspired by a lot of the things that were happening in Penn Station Mm -hmm. um, and all the other things that were happening throughout the city. They got a charter to open a small museum and to recreate life here at the South Street Seaport as it was from 1820 to 1860. During the 70s, they started collecting a lot of these classic vessels, these ships that we have today that are a part of the life of the seaport. A lot of those came along starting in the 1970s. They even succeeded in having the whole district uh, turned into a historical district in 1977. Speaking of beautification efforts in the 1970s, it was during this period when an artist named Richard Haas was hired to somehow cover up the blight that was the side <laughs> of Con Ed substation that's on Peck Slip, which is part of the South Street Seaport area. And I believe this was 1978, correct? Yes. Because, so this would have just been when they got a historic district. So they're going to be very mindful of how they're going to disguise this in a way that's going to make it blend in. Right. With the historical diorama that they're creating. Because you had these old buildings, these preserved 19th century buildings, um, and then you had some really ugly 20th century buildings. A few of them, sure. Like the Con Ed substation. You also <laughs> had lots of parking lots and things like that. So in revamping the area, the side of the substation seemed like a perfect mural for an artist like Richard Haas to come in and to create an enormous trompe l'oeil, a sort of a... <laughs> Excuse me? And it, it, it's French. Okay. An optical illusion. Like a panorama of yes. sorts? Okay. Well, it, it depicts on two building surfaces. To the left, a five-story brick building with a shop at the bottom. And to the right, an open arcade that says arcade, <laughs> surrounded by windows. And very classical styled. But these aren't real. This is the painting. No, this, this is, is the an illusion. The building. And it's quite, it's quite lovely. Yeah, I mean, and it's ev- still there. And, and, you know, I think that as anyone walking by will attest, it's pretty much successful in so much that some people don't even notice it. They just walk by. 
as much as something like that can blend in, it didn't it did succeed. Now, that brings to mind the fact that they do want to turn this area now into a, a, a bigger tourist draw, of course. Now, we have an, a historic district. We don't have a lot of industry going here, so tourism is a good way to energize the neighborhood. But how do you energize a neighborhood that's mostly known for fish and sailing? Well, I have an idea. You you build a mall. <laughs> because we yeah. are talking the 1980s, and so what you did in the 1980s, you just build malls everywhere. And other cities were doing the same thing, Baltimore, Boston. So I read this article from New York Magazine in 1980 that's talking about the excitement of this new mall in the new seaport. It's going to be the hottest neighborhood back in 1980. Quote, the expanding seaport is the first waterfront scheme in this city to promise such a farrago of urban pleasures, surprises, and adventures where the lure of shopping, sitting, strolling, and just lapping up history can create a new, the kind of excitement cities were once all about. Well, and you know, if we snicker perhaps a little bit only because we know that South Street Seaport, the the mall, the ensuing mall, would be kind of a letdown for us. But that sounds like a great idea. I mean, that description sounds fantastic. Well, and it got off to a bang when it opened in 1985. It was a $50 million three-story complex of 120 stores and restaurants that jutted out into the East River for the opening ceremony on September 12th, 1985. Ed Koch declared, this is one of the most important developments to have taken place over the last eight years of this administration. On top of it, there were thousands of people, streams of colorful confetti that poured through air compressors, 20,000 balloons, and a thousand member choir saying, I love New York, right there in front of the pier. Now, this is clearly not in keeping with the heyday of the 18th 20s, 1860s, which I think was the original motivation of the South Street Seaport Museum. This was more a celebration of 120 shop mall. <laughs> it was considered a success in terms of getting tourists to this neighborhood. However, it didn't get a lot of New Yorkers down there. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of cross traffic, which really what makes a, a great New York neighborhood so special. The irony of having the fish market right there was that it was actually celebrated by people who wanted to preserve the history of the neighborhood. It was still an operating part of the neighborhood. Right. It was like, come and you can see the legacy of this place still functional and relevant. You can see people coming in and buying fish, which was now entirely wholesale. Tourists weren't as interested in seeing that as they were in going to the the Gap or the, the athlete's foot. I mean, Tommy, and you remember walking around that area in the 90s, early oh, yeah. 2000s. And I mean, this, this it's true, the smell of the Fulton Fish Market really dominated yeah. the area. And it was just odd because it's right next door to this gigantic mall. And so it, it, something had to give with these something two forces. Was, something would give. You know, my first job was actually on Maiden Lane, 180 Maiden Lane, which is right there on South Street. And I would ride my bike down through the fish market in the morning as they were hosing down because, you know, by <laughs> nine o'clock or whatever, Whatever time I was going through there, they were cleaning up for the day. The day was long gone. But I do remember, obviously, the smell, the, the hosing. The guts, the and slipperiness. The guts. You would ride your bike through fish oh, guts. Yeah. I remember my tennis shoes like, streaking that home. So something was going to give here, and it was the fish market. Um, it, it was no longer practical to have it located there. So it moved in 2005 to Hunts Point in the Bronx. There have since been many more exciting plans 
and the new plans keep coming. So during the Bloomberg administration, uh, there were lots of new plans hatched. And in fact, as part of the Plan NYC or the Plan went. <laughs> Plan YC, <laughs> whatever, whatever that whatever that was called back then. Yeah, <laughs> this giant initiative to get the city sort of in shape by 2030 with lots of new park space and lots of new trees, etc. This called for the redevelopment of the waterfront from the Lower East Side all the way down to B- Battery Park, and included new ferry services, new parklands, bike and recreational paths, and things like that all along this area. A lot of it's gone into effect. A lot of it's opened up. And I would say for the most part, it's very successful. I I mean, it's fantastic in many parts. Yeah, Yeah, there are these new structures built on piers that go out, that are multi-level, that have places to eat or lounge about, watch the sunset, look across at Brooklyn. But it's the kind of construction that would have been unheard of even 50 years ago, much less 200 years ago. Right. I think we both agree that it's successful in, in bringing not just tourists, but locals seem to like to go there. I think that was the key ingredient to these things was to make the seaport, you know, for all kinds of people. Now, we can't talk about the seaport without mentioning Hurricane Sandy, which hit New York on October 29th, 2012. It affected many, many parts of the city and many parts of the eastern seaboard, obviously. But it had a rather dire effect on the seaport. It resulted in enormous flooding uh, and damages to the area and really to the entire area being shut down Mm -hmm. for... For quite a long time. For quite a long time. Some people didn't even come back until a year later... I mean, unfortunately, as of this date, the South Street Seaport Museum itself is no longer there um, due to the Sandy disaster. And it's just an odd thing to think because that organization was at the core of the whole neighborhood of its, you know, of, of its protection and formation in the 60s and 70s. So it is an odd thing not to have there because it was an incredible museum that was set up there at Skirmerhorn Row. And we certainly hope that it reopens as, yeah. as soon as possible. But things are reopening. For example, the Paris Cafe, which which opened in 1873 as a hotel right there on South Street. Wow, really? Was, during Sandy, flooded with 11 feet of water. 11 feet, um, which just destroyed much of its interior. It has reopened. And we just had drinks a few nights ago. At At Fresh Salt. At Fresh Salt, which which was great, and then had a good pizza around the corner. It's great to see that it's picking up again. I suspect when you, if you listen to this podcast in the future, if it's 2015 or beyond, that... There's a lot of new construction and a lot of new things that are happening in South Street Seaport at that moment. So the, and, that hopefully are taking it into like an, a great direction. And and Sandy will just be a, a chapter of that history. If you are listening in the future, you'll also know what plays out with the development of Pier 17 and the various other proposals that have been floated around. Some are on the books, some are being knocked off the books. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to talk about what the next step is. As we record in 2014, uh, there's a Howard Hughes Corporation, which now owns the Seaport Mall, the shopping mall, plans to tear it down to build a new glassy shopping... Very sleek. I saw sleek, yeah, swanky yeah. shopping center. Mm-hmm. And then there's also plans for a giant thousand-foot um, <laughs> condominium and a hotel across the street. Which is a little bit more problematic, needless to say. On the blog, BarryWoodsPodcast.com, I'll have lots of old-time lithographs of famous old boats, photographs of Seaport as it really looked in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and some of these new changes that worked and some of them that didn't. That's BarryBoysPodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook. 
Facebook slash Bowery Boys, and join Greg on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And if you like what we're doing, please go to the blog and we have a donate button. So if you if you enjoy what we do on, our, on a regular basis, help us out to improve the show for the future. So thank you very much for listening as we saunter through the history of the South Street Seaport. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming, discover beauty around every turn. Your California road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and ride with us in the California Road Trip Republic.